try a little thought experiment with me. I want you to imagine that you're born with a tone, uh, a sound being played in your ear. But here's the thing. The tone never varies in volume or pitch. Do you realize that if that tone stayed in your ear that you, you actually would never really hear it? Because you would have nothing to contrast the sound of the tone with anything else. You would never know life of what it felt like without the tone being played in your ear. I had this illustrated with me another way by a young lady that was involved in the campus ministry I worked with uh, who was talking about chronic pain. She had broken her ankle when she was younger and lived with chronic pain. And I would sit down with her and say, how's the ankle doing this week? And she would get this kind of faraway look and say, well, it still hurts. But I could tell that she hadn't really thought about it since I'd asked her, until I'd asked about it. But I could tell that it was always there. It was just constant in her life that sort of racked her with pain. You have to agree that there is a, there is a tendency in our humanity to hold very tenaciously to our present understanding of the world around us that honestly takes all kinds of stimuli in order to shake us out of seeing the world in that way, don't we? Well, you've caught us this morning on part two of our look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And I think what you'll find is this, this, this principle of persistence is going to hold so true for this tendency that we introduced last week for our hearts to create these little L lords and submit ourselves to them. And they don't get shaken up until something comes along to disrupt them or someone points it out to you so that you would notice it. So that's what we want to do this morning. I want to look very briefly, first of all, at what the idols are that present themselves to us as citizens of the fair town of Oxford. And then I want to look very briefly at how we battle those things. So naming our idols and battling our idols. First of all, naming our idols. You know, it makes a discussion on idolatry so helpful, and I mentioned this last week, is it allows us to go beyond just a superficial conversation about our sin. And typically when we start to deal with confession, we don't deal with what's going on beneath the sin. One pastor I read put it this way, we have our near idols and our far idols. A near idol is the way in which the far idol presents itself. The far idol, though, is what our souls are really clinging to. That's what I'm really going for. For instance, somebody might say, well, money is an idol for me. But you realize money is the near idol. That's the way in which the far idol is presenting itself. While the far idol can be just about anything when it comes to money. Uh, it can be a, a, an idol of comfort. It can be an idol of power. It can be an idol of a, of a picture of social standing with other people. But when you frame the discussion this way, you begin to sort of create power in your prayers that you didn't have before. Oftentimes when we're in the midst of confession, we're like, oh Lord, please, would you just take this sin away? And invariably we struggle with it continually, but it may be the reason that we're not repenting of, of, of the real idol. We've not looked not only at the sin, but the sin behind the sin that's really motivating them. And more on that in just a second. But I mentioned that just because I want to take a look at what I think we here in Oxford tend to wrestle with. It's just the three things that I came up with. And I want to sort of frame them this way. Number one, I think we struggle with an idol in Oxford with what I'll call a distinctive life. You know, I've grown accustomed to talking about Oxford. And it's a, it's a statement of affection. As a city that there's never been one more in love with itself than Oxford, Mississippi. Am I wrong about this? 
You know, we, we have to own, again, for the moment, that there's a genuine benefit to civic pride. I'm sure that helps people invest in your town. It helps people take ownership of their town. Those are good things. But civic pride can very easily turn ugly, can it not? Especially when it, when it creates this, um, this relational soup where we fail to see the people in our community that are hurting. Because that's kind of a Christian thing, right? Christians have their eyes trained on the poor and on the disenfranchised. But when you get obsessed with the prettiness of your town, do we somehow inadvertently sort of look at others you know, who, who, who may not be as valuable to us because honestly they just don't make us look very good? You know, the reaction to that often becomes sort of a, a, an, an, a, a, a real um, elitism in our own community. Elitism can grow up when you see an inflexibility to change. <laughs> you know, what happens in a community when they grow and what you used to love about your community is different now? You know, it, when inevitably it starts to grow, there's new roads that have to be built and, and infrastructure that has to be put in place so people can get electricity and, 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 and uh, water and also make sure that traffic is managed properly. But I don't know whether you've noticed, like I have in the last 21 years of being here in Oxford, there's a not-so-subtle conflict boiling underneath this city between what we would call Old Oxford and New Oxford. And if you haven't noticed, Old Oxford cannot stand New Oxford, right? It's too busy in town, right? It's too much traffic. And why do we have to have all these students? And who thought, who thought of these roundabouts? We can't stand when it happens, right? And before too long, we start sounding like someone who's despising brand new opportunities that God has given us to minister to more people. Man, can't you see how nostalgia for a place can be almost a, a pretense for blindness? I've even spoken to people who have moved, uh, who were preparing to move away from Oxford and have had other families look at them just terribly concerned. Are you sure you want to leave Oxford and put your children in that much danger when they're not in a wonderful community like ours? Feeling guilty for it. Yeah, there is ministry to be done in dying communities, but when your community is like ours that's growing and thriving, it means that your idolatries are going to be so much more subtle. And God's people need to be that much more aware. So there's an idol of a distinctive life. Secondly, though, I think there's an idol of what I'm calling a, a connected life. I think we've probably inherited this not just from Oxford, but from Mississippi as a whole. But have you ever noticed how much we value connections in this city? If you don't, talk to someone who just moved here from out of town and ask them about some of their first conversations because it is as if you aren't allowed to leave the conversation until that person figures out who your people are. And we play the sort of six degrees of Kevin Bacon game with each other. So I'm sure that I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows your mama. We look for those connections. And again, are we really upset by this? Is it bad to have connections? Well, of course it's not. Until you're the one left out in the cold. I know friends of mine who have been asked about their Greek affiliations while they were at Ole Miss before the people knew their name. Because we love those connections. Look, our desire to know that I'm part of some inner ring of social uh, influence can be the very thing that creates the spirit of exclusiveness among us. Even without realizing it, if we love our people, 
we tend to invariably sort of alienate the people that are not there. I talk to people who've lived inside Oxford for years and still feel like they're on the outside of the main goings on of the town. Why? Because they're not exactly sure what you mean when you say the Delta. You know, they, they weren't in a fraternity or sorority. They, they didn't have parents who attended here. I felt that. But here's the deal. When we join the body of Christ, there is a necessary demotion of every other social allegiance that might define me. But if I put so much emotional capital into these social circles of people that I value, and I can't see myself trampling on other people who don't have the same privileges, haven't I betrayed something about my Christianity? I used to talk about it this way. It's as if a social circle is standing in a circle, right? You, literally, if you were to stand in a circle and everyone's facing inside the circle, what's it like to approach that, that group? Hey, what? What are y'all doing in there? It repels. But I would suggest you that when the gospel gets inside of you and your group of people, as you stand in a circle, you're not facing towards the middle, you're facing out. So that your friends become people who have your back. But my frontward face is to welcome people in. Hey, there's a great question for your afternoon. Does your social circle welcome or repel? Is it open for people to be a part of? Or does it push to the margins? So there's the idol of a distinctive life, a connected life. Finally, there's the idol of a successful life. Look, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that Oxford's love of self has caused to be a town that works very hard to keep up appearances. Do we not? Look, we've quarantined our poverty in this town long before we ever quarantined because of the pandemic. You know, we get very upset if maybe a low-income development goes up in our neighborhoods that might bring the value of our house down, never mind how crazy overvalued it was in the first place. What is it that's driving this? And again, not to turn into sort of an armchair psychiatrist here, but I do think that when we have a rot inside of our core, the first instinct for us is to hide it. We want to smooth it over because we want people so much to think that we've got it together. Men, could this be what's driving us in our careers? You know, we love to be at the soccer fields where we sort of casually drop this idea that I, I just killed it last year in sales. Never mind the fact that I put myself on a travel schedule that was crushing. Why? So I can maintain appearances. And ladies, how long did it take you to realize that we are in Oxford a beauty culture? Boy, what a thriving physical fitness subculture there is here that holds out the promise of slimmer, better bodies. And of course, we don't realize, did we stop and think, what was it that actually motivated me to get that plastic surgery last year? How am I talking about my sense of confidence since I had that procedure? And how has the gospel addressed that undertone of what it means for me to be a confident person? Is my little mild day drinking habit... <laughs> more just an attempt sort of deal with a constant internal pressure to have what others in this town might think of as a successful life. Hmm. The idols of a distinctive life, a connected life, a successful life. Hey, what's your list? You want to have a fun afternoon? Sit down and try to identify, try to name what it is in Oxford that we live by. And don't give yourself an excuse to be uh, immune to them. 
So that's sort of a look at, at, at sort of a naming our idols, identifying them. But what about battling our idols? How does someone begin to combat this process that is at first so subtle, but also is robbing me of the gospel joy that I know God wants me to have? Well, I think in battling our idols, there's three things we ought to employ. The first one is that we have to resolve. Secondly, we have to reject. And thirdly, we have to rejoice. First of all, we've got to resolve. Look, I realize this sounds obvious, but there does have to come a point in our dealing with idols where we have to decide whether the world revolves around us or whether it doesn't. Either God is in charge of his world or he is not. Either I exist for his pleasure or he exists for my pleasure. But you can't have it both ways. Chris Hedges is a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and actually a seminary graduate. And in his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, he talks about his struggle with the Ten Commandments in his life. Apparently after his education, he had moved into some of the ghetto areas of South Boston uh, in Roxbury, where he was confronted with the reality of the ghetto that seemed to him beyond repair. And what happened was, as it does for many people, is it caused him a crisis, a crisis of faith, left him jaded and doubting. But he said it also let him know that God was just not at his beck and call anymore. This is what he says. He says, the darkness that I discovered in Roxbury was my darkness, our darkness. And it's what I carried out of the ghetto onto the platform at Harvard when I received my diploma, into the thin ribboned stretch of Central America, to the refugee camp in the Gaza, to the UN feeding stations in Southern Sudan and the cold murder streets of Sarajevo. It is knowledge of this darkness that alone makes faith possible. The church was my last refuge from God. And in the shattering of that moral certainty, I began to look for forgiveness. Idols promise us power, he says. God does not. Before God, we are all powerless. What's Hedges saying? He's saying that it wasn't until he realized that God did not fit into his neat categories that he was able to accept life for what it was. In other words, as he embraced his powerlessness, he found true faith. That's step number one. Who is going to be in charge of this world? You or God? We resolve. Secondly, though, we have to also reject. We reject things, if you think about it, that we know are bad for us. We walk up to a, to a stove or an oven and it's hot and our hand immediately jerks away. As we're driving home, we avoid those city streets that we perceive to be dangerous. But in that way, idols kind of mask the danger. One, one preacher I listened to said, idols create a delusional field around them that make us think that what's in them and serving them is going to be blessing. But what we have to do in combating them means that we have to name their mischief. We have to look and begin to trace in our own hearts the process of taking dominion over it by naming that thing. By the way, that's what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, did he not? He exercised some measure of dominion over the animals by naming them. We do the same thing with our idols. We begin to look and say, I know what this is. I know this is a lust for comfort. That's what I really want in life. What I long for is, is to be committed to looking good in front of other people. Own it. <laughs> My definition of success is worldly success. 
Because when we do so, you're on the process to naming how that idol has cursed you. Don't you see this? It gets us to the point where we look and say, it's not just that my idol has sort of made me spiritually bad. It's that my commitment to that idol and to my own sort of a, a, um, pattern of behavior with my children, that's what created the relational soup that pushed my children away from me. I contributed to that. In other words, I have to own that it was my love for my image that kept me at the office longer than I should have been, which helped alienate her from me. So that even my marriage problems are there. In other words, you have to and unmask these things for the destruction they cause in our lives and spell it out in such a way that, that, that realize they're destroying what I wanted. When I made an idol of my career and I, I gave it the ascendancy in my life, not only did I not get the fulfillment I was hoping it would give, but I didn't do my job very well either. C.S. Lewis says that when second things are made first things, they are necessarily corrupted. So there's a process of resolving, yes, but also rejecting. But finally, we have to rejoice. And in my opinion, this is kind of the big one. In other words, if there's a reason why an idol remains unassaulted in my life, it's probably because the desire for the thing to simply go away doesn't magically make it do so. Your heart is much more deceptive than that, <laughs> much more clever than that. Because if you don't replace the idol of my heart with something better, it's going to persist. Or maybe someone better. Why? Because my heart always gravitates to what it's convinced is its greatest joy. There was an old Scottish divine by the name of Thomas Chalmers, I quote from as often as I can, who wrote a little title of a paper called The Expulsive Power, Expulsive to Expel, of a New Affection. And Chalmers' point is just this, the best way to get your eyes off of something that is bad for you is to pass in front of your eyes something that's better. Ladies, if I want to get your eyes off an attractive man, the best way is to bring a more attractive man right behind him. Your eyes will train right to him. And the best ways to get your eyes off an idol is to come to see Jesus as being the only way that can resolve this tension between my desires and my nature. He has to become attractive. Hey, look, work through this with me. Like, at the heart of a pornography problem, for example, is not just uncontrolled lust, is it? It's that underneath it all, there's a longing that I'm looking to for the image on the screen to compensate for a deficiency inside my heart. It might be power. It might be insecurity. It might be a past wound that's unyet resolved in my life. Who knows? But, but when it comes down to it, I simply find the image on the screen to be fulfilling in a way that I have not come to know Jesus to be. Okay, but here's the, here's the punch. That's not true. At least according to the Bible. Because the Bible will say things like this, that in your presence, in your presence are joys forevermore. A day in your courts are better than a thousand beside, the psalmist will say. Now here's the deal. The Bible is either lying about that or it is not. And so the question simply becomes this, and I keep asking it in these terms. Are you even curious? 
Are you curious enough to investigate Jesus in the gospel, not out of a sense of moral compulsion, even though that would be a good reason to do so, but to investigate Jesus as he comes to us in the gospel as a potential source of joy, that there might be something there that maybe you missed? Has there ever come a time where you have found something attractive in God? Has the gospel ever been experienced by you with the same affection that you have for whatever vice you're wrestling against? And maybe one of the reasons why I've not experienced victory over those things is because the devil has somehow diminished that joy and convinced me that there won't be something there for me. I can give another example. I, I, was, I was thinking uh, this weekend about one of my favorite Bonnie Raitt albums, Nick of Time. She got, a, she got a song on there called All at Once where she talks about, she's playing a divorced person in the song and she's talking about a fight that she had with her daughter. She says, I got in a fight with my daughter. She flew off in a rage. It's the third time this week. Don't tell me it's the age. I was thinking about that because after 25 years of campus ministry, I came to know the conflicts between mommies and teenage daughters feel like the rule rather than the exception. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. And I've talked to a lot of mommies who in the midst of that moment feel so much shame about that conflict. And they're torn up on the inside and they pray. They're like, oh God, please help us not fight anymore. You know, Lord, just help, help, her to be, help her not to be so controlling. Help me to be more patient. And yet we're never making any sort of progress. But instead, what if all of a sudden you looked beneath and realized that before our conflict had erupted, I had invested so much of my image in her. So much so that when she failed, I felt like a failure. So here's the deal. My daughter is not my idol. It's my fear of failure that's my idol. So now here's a question. Arrest that moment. What if you found out, mommy, of a conflicted teenage child, what if you found out that no matter what your failure no matter what your child's behavior, no matter what cost to your reputation, that Jesus loves you. Like really and actually has a palpable yearning affection for you because of what he's won for you in the gospel. What if you knew that? Because if you begin to take that into your heart and it roots inside your heart, suddenly you have something that begins to erode at your conflict from the inside out, from the roots of that conflict. But this has to be the place to start because honestly, as long as you're doubting God's good intentions for you, you're never going to leave your idols and serve him. Let me finish with this little theoretical question. What would you say it was that got Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane? Okay, on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he went to go pray with a couple of his disciples. And as he was doing, he asked his father not to have to go through the cross. You know this, right? So touching his humanity, Jesus was conflicted about the task, probably because of what he saw opening up in front of him. So here's my question. How did Jesus make it through and actually follow through on the cross? Now, my guess is your answer to that question is, well, of course he made it through the cross. He was God. He didn't have any other choice. But you know what? I don't think that takes the text seriously. The Bible actually gives us the answer to that question in Hebrews chapter 12. There we find out as the writer, after giving us this, this exhortation to set aside any weight 
that's keeping us from battling our sin better? He tells us to look to Jesus, quote, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Did you catch that? How did Jesus get himself to go through the cross? There was joy set in front of him. And you are no different from him. Now the real question, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, is what was that joy? What was that joy? Maybe it's the joy of being with his father. Maybe it's the joy of accomplishing redemption. I think actually the witness of scripture is that joy was you. You were the one. The joy, think about that for just a moment. How would it transform you if you had a vision inside of your heart's imagination that what motivated Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane through, through, through blood and sweat coming down his face, that there was a joy out there and that joy was to have you happy and holy and with him for eternity. Hey, if you take that inside your heart, my guess is you're going to find that your self-pity looks awful pitiful. <laughs> it probably is going to make your lust look so drab. And how impoverished would my greed become if I really believed that? You shall have no other gods before me because I've taken delight in you. You can worship me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you gather us into that realization into that joy. Father, even as we come to this table to partake, to rejoice together, to sort of look inside the face of, of friends as we come forward down the aisle and meet them with a smile, as we come in the light of repaired relationships that you've fixed because of our presence here, may we remind ourselves that in so doing, we pledge our allegiance to you. And we ask, Father, that you would allow our time here to be just that exercise. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.